Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I am getting a lot of questions from leaders, from all of my clients, about how they can keep their teams motivated and focused, especially with all the uncertainty that's coming around the coronavirus, uncertainty around the status of um, employment, around when we're returning to the office, around what returning to the office will look like, around clients, around everything. So a lot of concern about how to keep people motivated and focused. Now, at the heart of those questions, I think there are really three elements. One is, how do we actually learn to live with the uncertainty about our future when we're not going to know what it looks like anytime soon? And with that comes a lack of control over so many things in our lives. So that's one issue. The second issue is, individuals are asking, how can I best help myself and my team cope with all the emotions that everybody's experiencing? Me? and the individuals in the team. And then three is really about resilience at the end of the day. How do we make ourselves and our teams more resilient? Because as we well know, this is not the last crisis that we're going to encounter, nor is this one necessarily going to go away quickly. Now, my guest today is actually really uniquely positioned to talk about those because he just recently published some work on leaders in a crisis. So my guest is Eric McNulty. Eric is a Harvard-affiliated writer, speaker, and educator who has a passion for purpose-driven leadership. He's also an associate director and program faculty at the Harvard's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, and his work centers on leadership and high-stakes, high-stress situations, kind of not unlike what we're in at the moment. And he's delivered a lot of keynotes and workshops around the world, including some graduate leadership programs at Harvard, MIT, and elsewhere. More importantly for today, he's the co-author of Your It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. And also, he's got a second edition of another book called Renegotiating Healthcare, Resolving Conflict to Build Collaboration. Again, a second theme that seems to me highly relevant at the moment. Eric writes for lots of different places, but particularly for Strategy Plus Business and some others as well. You can get to know more about his work if you're interested at his website, ericmcnulty.com. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Wanda, thanks so much for having me back. I'm happy to be here. I'm thrilled, and I can't imagine a more timely book. I mean, we talked just under a year ago about your the book you've written, You're It, and I should say that there are several other authors with you on that book as well. But at that time, we were focusing on how do you prepare for a crisis, all the change and the pace of a change that was coming and that everybody was talking about at the time. And we talked a lot about what leaders need to do to be ready when a crisis hits. Um, but... As it would happen, here we are in the middle of a crisis none of us quite saw coming unless you were just incredibly brilliant in your seeing of a crystal ball of what we were going to gonna have coming ahead of us. <laughs> so well, I can't you know, imagine I, I a better think time. That this, well, that's true. And I'm uh, sad to say crisis leadership is a, is a growth industry. Uh, if you'll recall, before we got into this pandemic, we had the massive wildfires here in the U.S. and Australia and Portugal. We have had flooding around the world. We've got locusts in Africa, drought in Africa. Um, we, we've had a lot of ongoing crises. And so it's, uh, I say it's, it's, uh, it's good for my research, but I'm really sorry for all the pain that it's causing people around the world. It may be a signal we need to stop and take notice of some things. So, In this book, you went back and looked at a bunch of leaders in the midst of crisis and tried to understand what is that they did and how they did it and what that means for us. So, But what got you started on doing that work? What was the compelling reason for you? You know, for me, it's funny because it was a bit of an accidental start, although I quickly found the the home there. Um, I had been working at a different part of Harvard over at the business school, their publishing group, writing and editing and running conferences when uh, I got the opportunity to join this group to help them do their research. And 
you know, it really came back to me as I began to get into it and understand not just the academic aspect of, of crisis leadership, but began to meet a lot of first responders, people who spent their lives actually in the fight, making the really tough decisions, often life uh, life and death decisions, and really appreciated uh, what they brought to it and how the work that I do, uh, being able, if I can help them do their job just a little bit better, our, our communities are better, lives are saved, lots of good things happen. So I'm really, I'm really happy that I get the opportunity to contribute in that way and to support them in what they're doing. Now, I will say, I look back to sort of the one of the roots of this and why I found this so satisfying was that I was due to be on the American flight on 9-11 that went into the World Trade Center. I had accidents on the calendar. The trip got moved by one day earlier, so I was safely in California when all that happened. Um, but it, just by that the trick of fate, um, I would have died that day. And so, again, it's a real motivator to give back and support the people who were out trying to save lives every single day. Yeah. That's interesting. I was due to be the next day in the World Trade Center in a meeting. And I think about that on a regular basis, how close we come to some disasters and the implica- implications on our lives. That's amazing. And for the just for the record, for people who've not caught up with this one, the book was published um, back in 2019. So when you're talking about first responders, you're talking about first responders for things like the Boston Marathon or 9-11 or any number of other events, not necessarily the current pandemic. Exactly. This goes back. We back as far as Katrina, but it's also, you know, it's natural disasters, terror attacks, corporate crises, a whole range of, of things that put stress on organizations, individuals, and communities. And so we tried to look at a pretty broad swath of people to not never to anoint someone a hero or say someone did a terrible job, but to find out what are the consistent things that either gave people challenges, we have to help them figure it out, or when did somebody do something particularly well in a way that you could carry it forward and help others following their footsteps. Yeah. All right. So I want to take a different slice on this one with that as a background. And I want to talk about uncertainty. So of all of the people that you talk to in the middle of a crisis, whether it's the Boston Marathon or a drought or a corporate crisis or any of those, there has to be an awful lot of uncertainty. So what did you learn about how people managed the uncertainty that was around them? Well, I think that we've learned that there is a, an illusion of certainty, uh, and I think the people who do well in crisis realize that. We talk a lot about certainty, and we always say this, people love certainty. There's much less certainty in life than we think there is. There's some regularity, perhaps, uh, but not a lot of certainty. And the people we've seen who do really well, they know there are some things they can control, and there are a whole lot of things they can't control, and they try and do a really good job controlling what they can, and they don't obsess over what they can't. They try and influence it. They try and shape the, the arc of what's happening, but they don't go crazy. If you're in a hurricane, you can't control the hurricane. In this case right now with coronavirus, the virus is setting the time, the, the pace here and the timing. We can't control the virus. Are you having a hard time controlling people's response to the virus and getting them to stay six feet apart and wear masks? So I think that first thing is to realize if you try and go crazy over controlling everything, you will you'll first frustrate yourself and you're really going to go bad place. You have to realize that we get disrupted cognitively, psychologically, and emotionally. So cognitively, it's figuring out what's going on. And again, in the case of a, of a, a novel virus, that's really tough. That's really hard for a lot of people because we have not seen this one before. Psychologically, you have to be able to start doing things and solving problems. That gives you back your agency. So you go from powerless to powerful in terms of doing something, anything, to try and make things better. And then emotionally, as a leader, you have to get people hopeful, even though things are difficult right now, that we will get through this. And so people going from hopeless to hopeful, those are your charges as a leader, is helping them figure out what's going on so they're, they're cognitively grounded, get them doing something so they're more psychologically grounded, and then emotionally support them and get them hopeful for the future, even if right now things look really difficult. Right. 
that those three, I think, are just so powerful because you certainly see it in the middle of the pandemic. I think everybody can relate to it, how much we're all consuming news just to try to understand what's really happening. And the story is changing, which adds to a whole lot more uncertainty. We're discovering new things along the way. Plus, we have a lot of false information as well to kind of account for. And then the figuring that you have some agency that you can do something, there's an action you can take that gives you some sense of control or some sense of power, not control, but some sense of power back and that you're moving forward on the right solution. Um, And then this whole emotion, the ranges of emotions that people are experiencing, those three make sense to me. I want to come back to something you said earlier, though. You said that people who do well with uncertainty realize that certainty is an illusion, that there's a lot of stuff we do not have control over. We may try to influence it or shape it, but we can't have control over it. So every person I've ever talked to in my life, all the research I know around uncertainty says that same thing, except I sit across the table from individuals who are used to being able to try to structure their lives, plan what's ahead, and that gives them comfort. How do we help those people get okay with the fact that there's a lot they don't control? Well, I think what you need to do then is is substitute the word order for control. So if we were in a room full of, uh, of people, if I was speaking to a group right now and I asked everybody who likes being controlled, raise your hand. Usually no hands go up at all. And then when I say, I say, who likes order? Knowing what's expected of you and what you can expect of others. Most of the hands go up. We actually do like an orderly life. And so you can begin to instill that by being consistent yourself so people know what to expect of you. If you are a hierarchical leader, if you're the boss, make clear what you expect of others try and create that clarity, you actually can create a great deal of order even when there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, you can control the, your commitment to your people. You can control um, how you how your organization is going to do certain things. You can, you can create certainty around process and transparency around process. So there are things, usually the things you can do to, again, control what you can control, which can create an environment of an orderly environment which does help people relax. It's a more psychologically safe environment. It's one way in which you can, you can feel comfortable contributing and, and investing yourself in because you're not afraid of what's going to happen next. So, you know, again, you, you can't, don't give false promises, but where you can be, you know, you as an individual can be consistent. So when Wanda shows up, I know who's showing up. It's not that you're, you know, Susie Sunshine one day and then the, you know, the, the short, snippy person the next day no, you're self-aware and you manage your emotions in a way that when Wanda walks into the room, we know who's coming in. That helps people a lot. They know okay. that and they can know that of their, of their peers. So there are, the, there are ways you actually can create a lot of a rhythm to what's happening, even though there's, a lot, there's always going to be uncertainty about what's happening with the virus, who's catching it, not what's the governor, president, mayor, whatever going to say and do next, the things you can't, you can't fully know. Uh, but if we know we can count on each other, and we know our, we have our values, they're, they're going to remain consistent and we're going to hold true to those. Those create the certainty of an anchor people can hold on to. Okay. So it's a matter of finding the few small things that you can say we're not going to deviate from, like our values or like the way that I, my demeanor, the way in which I show up as a leader, or like my willingness to be transparent with what I know with where I am. But there are very few of them. You're right. Absolutely very few. Well, there are more than you realize, though. So think okay. about this. We will be on time for our meetings. There's okay. a really easy way to create some certainty and so, something people can count on. Is if we all say, you know, whether we're, whatever platform we're on, however we're doing this, we are going to be on time. And we're going to have an agenda, and we're going to follow the agenda. We're going to have some agenda discipline. There's a okay. couple of really easy things people can do that actually do create a bit more certainty in somebody's day. Boom. Okay. So you see the opportunities are around us, and yet the, the, the big ones are value, and again, and you're being consistent with yourself as a person. But there are little ways we can begin to offer some certainty around people. And they don't need to know everything's going to be the same, but they need to know a few things they can count on. Okay. 
All right, I get the point. So that gets the point. Um, now, how about for an individual leader by themselves in the room, nobody's listening, where that leader is having a hard time coping with the uncertainty and the lack of control. You know, I can't control the stock market. I can't control my shareholders responding. I can't control my clients. I can't see my people. I mean, you can feel kind of completely out of control in that one. Any specific advice for that leader? Um, I think I would certainly recognize those feelings and take them take them seriously because I think we are seeing, we are going to have an there's enormous amount of mental stress, emotional stress in this crisis, in any crisis, but this one in particular because it keeps rolling on. Uh, unlike you know, most things we face, a hurricane's over in a few hours, a tornado in a few minutes, and even an active shooter incident, as violent as it is, the actual action's usually over in, in a few seconds. Uh, and then we begin the recovery process. This one says keep rolling, and we're, you know, I think we're somewhere near the middle of the middle of this one. Uh, but it's going to go on for a while. So acknowledge those feelings. It's really good to, uh, if you haven't developed one before, start one now. It's sort of a peer net, peer group or peer network of people you can reach out to. It may not be in your organization, but they're at a similar level. They know the kind of pressure you're facing that you can just reach out to and talk and just talk to each other and say, how are you feeling? I'm feeling totally out of control. I get it. I am too. Um, finding someone who can, with whom you can share those emotions uh, and who you can be brutally honest with. So it's not necessarily your spouse or your subordinates, but someone who's a, a peer in another organization. That can help a lot. Um, taking time again to, I think, in this time, to look for the little ways you, you can regain some sense of control. Get up every, at the same time every day in the morning. Have your breakfast at the, you know, the same time or the same way every day. Get dressed as if you're going to work, even though you're only walking from your bedroom to, the, to your home office. Begin to build a routine. That shows you've got some control over some things. Uh, and then again, right now, I think it's, it should be liberating what's happening in the stock market. It's, you know, it's horrible as, you're, as an investor, and certainly a lot of senior executives are losing a lot of money uh, as the market goes down. However... Unless you're in, unless you're making one of the things that's central to uh, to what's is happening right now, if you don't make respirators or masks or gloves, what's happening to your stock is largely a, a, a result of these larger forces that are making it go crazy down one day and then rally back the next. That actually gives you some freedom to do the things you want to do because you're not going to get blamed for, any, for that in those individual swings. There's not much you can do about it. Does mean you can be looking hard and saying. What's our strategy going to be? How are we going to be ready to accelerate on the other side of this? What are the moves I can make right now to ensure that I've got the people I need ready to go as soon as it's clear to do so? So you can be able to begin to take those proactive steps to be ready to launch right now. Again, even though it's not quite sure when it's going to be or what it's going to look like, you can still take some positive steps forward. I... I like the, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me in that it now this phrase of being what you can control and recognize there's a whole lot you can't control takes it out of the realm of just a saying and into something that's more tangible. So recognizing that there are feelings, having places to express those feelings that are safe, but where people will be brutally honest with me, and then gain control over the little tiny things like the routine of my day, and then using the regularity, if you will, to give you some sense of control, um, and to begin to think proactively. I see how some of all of that one makes a ton of sense. Now, we talked about in terms of uncertainty that the big one was recognizing that certainty is always an illusion. And that we have to get on top of the cognitive, the psychological, and the emotional components here. Um, are there other things that we need to be aware of in trying to cope with uncertainty? Yes, I think that you you need to realize that you you are not the only one who is going through this and wrestling with this because people are you know at home they're worried about their families. The thing that really makes this crisis different than any other we've faced in in recent memory is that. It, it is affecting everyone. Everyone is a potential victim of this. So there is a lot of just general stress in the air. It's, it's, you're worried about the virus. You're worried about your job. You're worried about your 401k. Well, you're worried about whether your kid's going to be able to go to school in the fall. All of those things. And so I think realizing you're not alone. Because the, the other thing you can begin to do is, that helps you is to help others. 
a lot of psychological research behind this, that we actually trigger very positive emotions in ourselves and we're able to help others. So as a leader in an organization, be generous and help those who work with you be generous as well. Find ways to to engage in whether it is something directly involved in in uh, in this in fighting the coronavirus, be it supplying meals to frontline people or whatever it is, or it's indirect. It's you know, can your people help uh, mentor kids who are now having to learn from home? Whatever it is, help find ways for people to help others, and they will feel better themselves. And so. Yeah, that's a really good way you as a leader can model that, be authentic and be open about your own feelings, sharing those, and then find ways to help others. It's a great way to trigger positive emotions. That's great. Um, that's a, people are asking me all the time, how, what kind of team activities can we do? And that would be one, you know, sort of identifying a thing that our team is going to rally behind as a way to help, whatever that might look like for us. I just want to highlight here that everybody has their own set of stressors in this environment and their own set of emotions coming out of the environment. And it is not uniform. We tend to talk about it as if we're all experiencing the same thing, but it's not true. Um, and some of us are reacting to one stressor, others are reacting to completely different stressors. Sometimes we don't even recognize what's a stressor for someone else. So I just want to acknowledge that there is no single formula other than everybody is experiencing something. So with that, Eric, one of the things that I've been talking to clients about in this time, especially around teams and teams that of leaders who are leading others in the organization, is just to recognize how much emotion is out there. I think there's been emotion always, but we've never had a reason to talk about it in the ways that we are talking about it at the moment. So what's your perception on how we should be talking? I mean, you said we should acknowledge what we're feeling. Some people are more comfortable with that than the others. So, you know, help us understand how you see that. Sure. And so I think that Talking about emotion doesn't mean we're all going to, well, we actually, we can't go give each other hugs right now. We have to stay six feet away. But it, it doesn't mean you're being weak. It doesn't mean you're being weepy. It means you're acknowledging how people feel. And when people feel positive, when they feel upbeat, they're more engaged in their work, and they're going to they're gonna produce more for you. They're going to be you know, you're getting the best out of your people. And so, you know, it's important to realize that. You know, one of the the best books I've read in the last couple of years is called Mama's Last Hug by Franz Deval. And he's a primatologist. And he, this book is about the emotional lives of animals. And I do a lot of work on animal issues, the environment. So it was a natural read for me. But it's a fascinating book because what Deval shows is that the uh, animals are much more emo- have a much more emotionally rich lives than we typically give them credit for. And what's interesting is how much they mirror in, in ways, our own lives. And you begin to see, you realize that we are essentially emotional beings. Mm-hmm. And that this whole, no, again, another illusion we've had for the last 30 years ago, whatever, of, of uh, you know, lots of people, business, and, you know, MBAs and such, as they take the emotions out of it, like, let's make rational decisions. Let's not talk about this stuff. And certainly, let's not talk about it. It goes back generations, uh, in certainly in certain, in area, certain areas. We, are, we only function as humans as emotional beings first. I mean, that's, so we have to engage with them, realize that when people are fearful, when they are hopeless, they are not going to be good employees, they're not going to be good family members, they're not good community members, so we have to be able to support them and try and get people to the best possible place we can. That's in everyone's best interest. So it doesn't mean you have to turn into a psychologist, it doesn't mean you have to, uh, as I say, be... be uh, running around giving everyone hugs, but it does mean you have to realize that people who are emotionally healthy are going to be the best for you, the best at your customers. They're going to come up with the best new ideas. They're going to get them to market fastest. You really want to, uh, if you can cultivate that kind of environment where it's okay to say this doesn't feel right or people that say, you know, I'm, I'm going to something really rough at home right now and get some understanding as opposed to being afraid that you're not going to be seen as weak and therefore excluded from things or not given high-profile projects. Uh, it just creates false divides in our lives and I think really brings us down. 
I've heard this advice for years and years and years, particularly when there's a conflict or there's a different disagreement and we can't decide which way forward that you should take the emotion out of it. And my comment to people has always been, if you can take the emotion out of it, then it was never that important to you in the first place. So there you go. I agree, <laughs> I agree with you that we are emotional beings and I think we react emotionally first. I think we actually decide emotionally first and then we justify it rationally. And there are a lot of people who've written about this one over the years. But And if I see my job as a leader to helping people become more hopeful or more positive are the words that you've used, I think, not that I control their lives or that I delve into their private life in a way that is un- unwelcome, but that I find a way to have them feel a little more hopeful and a little more positive, then I'm going to get better work out of them, Okay. So what have you seen in the work that you've done that leaders can use to help people feel more hopeful? So one of my favorite stories about this goes, actually goes back to Hurricane Katrina many years ago now. Um, that Allen, the Coast Guard, he was a two-star admiral at the time, and he was, he was the one assigned to take over the response to Katrina after Mike Brown was let go uh, by President Bush. And so you may recall bodies were floating in the street, the media was saying the government had no idea what they were doing. And here, Alan walks in, and he's, a, he's inherited a workforce that is very dispirited, feeling hopeless, feeling maligned, um, yet there's a lot to get done. And the story, as he tells it, um, and I've heard from others who were there, he was in an uh, abandoned shopping mall, shopping mall in Baton Rouge they were using as an operations center, and he got up on a table, said a few very simple things. He got a bullhorn and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. From here on going forward, we're going to treat everyone we meet as if they're a member of our family. And if anyone, you make a mistake treating someone like they're a member of your family, you're going to make a mistake doing too much, not too little. Anyone's got a problem with you doing too much, and they haven't got a problem with you, they've got a problem with me. It was less than 30 seconds. He said you could feel the, bar- the barometric pr- pressure in the room change. Because now you just said to people, okay, I trust you to do your job. I want you, you're going to feel good about your job because you're going to treat people as if they're members of your family. There's no worrying about filling out the right form or giving them the wrong thing. You're going to treat them as if they're family. You're going to take care of them. Very emotionally driven direction. And then if there's a mistake, guess what? I've got your back. I'm going to back you up on this. So there was a way, and the response went much better once I was under Alan's command. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of reframing things and resetting things to say, okay, here's where we're going to go. You can count on this. Again, here's some certainty. I've given you some direction. I've given you direction in a way that's going to make you feel much more positive about what you're doing. And one of the things that helps people the most is knowing that the boss has their back. That you're going to make mistakes in situations like this, in crises, no one is perfect. You're going to make some mistakes. So if I know I, I should make mistakes being too generous, not too miserly, and you've got my back on that one. If I say, if you take care of a customer, I've got your back. And I've heard stories about that as well from the private sector of organizations that said, you know, we take care of our people first and gave people a lot of latitude. As long as they were taking care of their people, the company had their back. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things can really reset the emotional tone uh, of the situation very quickly. That, it, it is fascinating how much 30 seconds can change the tone of a room. And then assuming you actually mean that and follow through on it and are consistent with it, you know, day in and day out, you can see the tide turn in a group where they're really willing now to do things they were unwilling to do before or relying on each other in ways they were unwilling to do so before. Okay? All right. And what's interesting about that, it isn't a speech that says, rah, rah, come on, this is going to be great. We're going to get through this and we're going to be better at the end. Because I think most people say, you can't tell me that, you don't know that. And it is, though, a realistic of here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to do it. And if it doesn't work, I've got your back. That's right. That's right. I think that you don't want to give false hope, but you can say, I have great confidence we will get through this. You can say, there's no one I'd rather be going through this with than you. Mm. Those kind of things give, give people great hope and confidence without overpromising and saying, don't worry, it's all going to be, you know, it's going to be fine in a week. Yeah. Because you're right. They, people, people see through the, the false promises really quickly. 
Okay. Okay. You said earlier that one of the ways of generating positivity and hopefulness was getting people to help others, whether that's people internally or people externally in the community, whatever. But did that turn our focus a bit on the ways in which we are helpful? Um, Are there any other ways of generating hope and positivity? Well, I think that when you get people in problem-solving mode, uh, we are natural problem solvers as humans. So get them into solving a problem. It could be an internal problem. It could be helping with the external response to this particular crisis. It could be, hey, let's take the time now to cut away all the crap for as much as we can in the organization. Let's figure out which meetings really don't create any value, which processes can be improved, what things could we do differently. So this is, we're better at the other end of this when we come out of this. And so you, you get people, and again, when they're solving problems, when they're doing something productive, you've given them some agency, they're going to be naturally more positive. And I, I to say, you know, all the years I've, I've worked in, in, in organizations and with organizations, the answers to 95% of your problem are already in the organization. You know, people know what doesn't work, what doesn't make any sense anymore. They've got ideas on how to fix it. What they're waiting for is permission and an environment in which they can surface those ideas. They've given permission to go try something new. Now's a great time to do that. You, you've got to, you know, don't waste this crisis. I was talking to somebody the other day who said her, her, her clients, one of them had eliminated uh, as much as 50% of their internal processes um, because they just realized that they had built up a lot of bureaucratic stuff over the years, and now they were able to stand back, take a, take a broader look at what it was, and figure out new ways to do things that were much more efficient. Yeah. That's a great thing. That will make people feel more positive. You're going to come, you're, you're working to improve things, make things better for them. And it may not be a, a better in the next 10 minutes, but it's going to be better in the, when we come out of this at the end of the summer or next winter, whenever this thing finally recedes. Great. That makes a lot of sense. One of my favorite CEOs, I have a number of them, but one of my absolute all-time favorite CEOs says, if you're not sure what to do, ask people, and they have an uncanny way of telling you what it is that needs to get fixed. So, And his belief yes. is you change things by fixing stuff. You know, you just go start fixing stuff. That's gonna. That's really good. And people do have, the, have a good sense. My second comment, though, is way too many times as leaders, we believe that we are supposed to have the answer. That our job is to know what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. And I think this moment in time, the lack of control that we all sense is a perfect time to say, I don't necessarily know, but what ideas do you have? And let those ideas come from the team rather than you're having to generate every single one of them. Um, And it's amazing. Like People have been asking me about what kind of team activities can I do that kind of create momentum and bonding I'm like, well, why do you think of it? Turn that over to your team. They'll have ideas. They know what they want to do, and there'll be more um, variety on that one as well. All right, Eric, this is a perfect time to take a break. So with me today is Eric McNulty. The book I can highly recommend is You're It, Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. When we come back, I want to talk particularly about resilience and how we improve the resilience in our organizations and in ourselves. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. 
Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Eric McNulty. Eric is a Harvard-affiliated writer, speaker, and educator, and he teaches in all sorts of programs, including those, the director and faculty, program faculty at Harvard's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Um, the book that we're talking about is a book that was published last year called You're It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. And what's most relevant for me about this particular content is it is about people in the middle of crisis where there is huge uncertainty, a lot of trauma, and what we've learned about how those people come through it and manage and so on. And the topic I want to talk about right now is resilience. I know that's been a core theme that comes through all the stories of all the people that you've talked to and interviewed. But my first question for you, Eric, is do you believe people can actually develop resilience? Like, can we get better at this? I think we do. I think we've been getting better at at it all of our lives. I mean, resilience is something you build up by going through adversity. And we all have had some adversity in our lives. And so you become more resilient over time. Now, it may be somewhat contextual uh, if you've been through one kind of crisis but not another kind of crisis. Um, but, you know, I always think of resilience as the ability to bounce forward. I don't believe there is a bouncing back. It's, it's going through adversity with hope that you're going to come out the other side. And I think that's something we, we, we do Though I will say, I think it's all we can be more intentional about, and certainly as a leader in an organization, you can be more intentional about building the resilience of the organization, thinking how you as a team, as a group, um, come through things together and are able to bounce forward more productively. Okay, so... Tell us how then. I love that one. I'm going to use that one for forever. Bounce forward. I'm going to do that one. And I liked your phrase that resilience is about going through adversity with hope that we'll come out the other side. And that ties right back to what we said in the last segment about what leaders are doing that generates a sense of hope and positive emotions to get the best out of their people. So how can you as a leader be more intentional to build resilience? One of the things you can do is certainly ask yourself and ask your team how any given decision will affect their resilience. Will it enhance it or will it detract from it? And that goes to everything from where you're located to who you hire to how you structure. If you have that in mind, it becomes one of the criteria for making a decision. It keeps it more top of mind. Another tool that I'm quite fond of, and I picked this up when visiting Israel, where they take resilience very seriously, it's something called a resilience narrative. And that is where you ask people to write down what resilience will look like. So, you know, I'm a branch bank manager. A resilient branch of this bank will be dot, 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 and then start filling it in. Uh, it's one where employees feel valued. It's one where we can reopen after, uh, after a storm in less than 48 hours. Whatever, you know, get as concrete as you can be get understanding what people see as resilience, then you can begin to build in the structures, the processes, the resources you need to do that. And it begins to show you where you're fragile. If, you know, someone says that we're resilient, if, if, I, can, uh, if I can walk into the branch with a smile on my face every day, so what does that mean? And to, again, the more concrete you can get around it, the more you, ideas you'll get of how to build resilience in your particular situation. Okay. I like that. So a resilience narrative where you write down in concrete, specific terms, what does resilience in my spot of the business look like or in my life, for that matter, look like? Concrete, practical, right now, me in this situation. It's a very interesting idea. And I like this notion that you keep the idea of how every decision affects our resilience. Because if you ask that question, even down to who you're hiring, um, or when you're holding a conference, that that just keeps everybody thinking about it on a regular basis. All right, I want to go backwards. I think that, he, you'll go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I one quick point. Because I think one place we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of fragility in our system right now as we go through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And one of the places I think we're, we've seen it is to the extent that 
businesses have come to rely on contract workers, gig workers, people who are not really, you know, they're part of the team, but they're not part of the team. And that's really efficient in the short term. But then when you see how differently you have to treat them, or if you're afraid to give them certain benefits because then they become employees, all the dancing we've done around that, I, I think is, a, is something that's created fragility. If you were to ask people about their resilience and what it looked like, part of it would be that the people who are on the team are actually part of the team. And that you could they feel that way, you treat them that way, and that we are a unit. So that's just an example of where I think we've made decisions with without resilience in mind, the other economic imperatives for doing it. Um, but we're seeing now how that can stre- stress organizations at a time like this. Yeah, I see that one. I also see um, fragility in terms of the technology that we use. You know, the ways in which we have so much technology that had been introduced in companies, but at the same time, it wasn't fit for the purposes that we now find ourselves in, at least not at the scale we're finding ourselves in. Um, and those are systems, again, if you think about that, how does that can make us more resilient at the time of the decisions that would probably have helped as well. So let's go backwards for a bit, back to the book and back to the, all the people that you talked to. Some of those folks went through some absolutely horrendous situations, so huge adversity. Tell me about what you learned from how their resilience developed from talking to them. You're right. There were a number of, of really dramatic stories, and I think one of the, the most memorable ones for me was Jimmy Dunn, who was a we talked about 9-11 earlier. He was one of three managing partners at an investment bank that was in the World Trade Center. He happened to be out with clients that day. So when the plane hit the towers, they lost quite a number of people, including his two other managing partners. Um, the firm was on the verge of going out of business. And when he talked about how they came back, and they're now, they, they grew back to be bigger, they've now been acquired, they're a much bigger firm, so they did succeed. And one thing he said was, first, the first he saw coming back as victory against the terrorists. If they went out of business, then those terrorists had won. And so it was a personal battle to not let them win. But then he also said a big part of why they were able to do it was he put a lot of attention to taking care of the people in the organization. He went to every funeral and memorial service that he could physically get to. He continued to pay people, continued to provide benefits to the families of people who, when the employee had been killed. They did a lot of things to take care of the people. And he said he thought of the, what he was doing as activities in two hands. In one hand, he had the people issues. In the other hand, he kept the business issues. And Jimmy said, the more I took care of stuff, the people issues, the more the business issues seemed to take care of themselves. Take care of the people, the people took care of the business. And there was a lot of generosity around them. Some of the other firms threw them some business, gave them space to operate out of. So they really got a, a hand back. But he said, you know, if he focused on the business, the business might not have succeeded. It was by focusing on the people that the business began to thrive. And that, to me, was such a perfect example of resilience and what it takes to, to really suffer a, a deep, deep blow and yet bounce forward. Okay. So, again, we're back to noticing the emotions of people. It reminds me of the story that you told earlier about Katrina. We're going to treat people like their family members. That deep care service, if you will, being helpful to people is kind of the thing that rides us through this in some ways. Is that a fair summary? It is. Why do we work in organizations except that we can do more better together than we could do apart? You know, we are there because we need each other. We, are, we as humans are a social species. And the reason we form these organizations and work together is because we can do a whole lot more and we can do it better together than we can apart. That means we need to attend to each other as people and not just as, the, you know, some thing that sits behind a desk, but actually as a human being. As many of my millennial um, friends and clients say, I want you to care about me as a person, not just about my output. That was before the crisis. Yes, but that's the story here. And, think, and I, you're right. Yeah. You, you have to think about how can I get people to contribute their best, not just how can I get the most out of them. 
And for all the years of doing engagement surveys and so on, somehow we keep missing that core element of what it's really about. And I love your statement that we do more and better together than we do apart, which means we need each other, which means we have to attend to each other as human beings. Great statement. All right. Any other observations about resilience? Any other ways of growing resilience? So there is the caring for people. Anything else that helps us bounce forward? I think there is the realization of the importance of self-care. You know, I not long ago was in a discussion about, uh, and I mentioned the phrase work-life balance, and a wise friend of mine stopped me and said, there is no work-life balance. There's only life balance. And to me, I thought it was so true that here was this phrase I, I picked up, we all used. The first thing I noticed was that work comes before life, which is a little odd. And then my friend said, actually, it's all just part of life. And we have to feel like our lives are in balance, which means, yes, we actually get great satisfaction out of doing the work we do, most of us, and going, you know, being part of a, of a, of a team, getting better at what we do, demonstrating our skill. Even if you're, you're a housekeeper at a hotel, you're a really good housekeeper. That's just going to be a satisfying job. So we have to remember that, but also part, it's part of our life to be a spouse, friend, a parent, a sibling, you know, all those things contribute to our lives. And when we feel like we are in balance, I think we attend to everything better. We, we get better at each one of those things. And so, you know, the, the making everyone commit to work sort of 24-7, which is a real challenge right now, I think, actually, we're all working from home. I think our initial research has shown people are working yet longer hours. That doesn't mean you're getting the best out of people. It just means you're getting the most. And so we got to be thinking about how do we keep them in balance when they're with us? They're giving us their absolute best, their best ideas, the most energy. They're actually really getting, we're getting more out of them. The book out came out earlier this year, end of last year, called The Four-Day Workweek. A CEO in the UK who moved over to a four-day work week in his organization, he found out they actually achieved more by working fewer hours. Because they, again, got rid of a lot of the meetings that didn't actually accomplish anything. They streamlined the processes. They got rid of the, you know, the crap. Pardon my, my language, um, but they're actually able to get more done, and people felt better about it because they were able to have enough time with their family and their friends. So when they were at work, they were really working. Yeah. Um, Stu Freeman, who's been a guest recently on the show, talks about the same thing as you do, this notion of it's all part of life. So we have to make sure that all the aspects of our life are in some appropriate balance, recognizing that what is balance varies person to person and year to year. And Stu has researched to say that if you, if people are balanced the way they want to be balanced, meaning they are doing what they need to be doing for the people that matter the most in their lives, that they will give a little less attention to work, but you actually get more productivity out of them at the end of the day. And it's that tolerance for something else that seems to make us all more effective, more fulfilled, and, you know, a whole bunch of other things. So that self-care is a really important piece. I agree with that one. Well, Stu's a smart guy, a nice guy as well. I've known him for many years, and his research is really good in this area. Yes. Yes. Um, I happen to agree with you on all of those accounts, too. So I hope Stu's listening in. He can appreciate all the good things we're saying about him. Um. One of the things that I find with far too many leaders that I work with and coach is that they're really good at reaching out to care for everybody else and not terribly good at the thing you started with, which is the self-care. They kind of put themselves last on the list. So any advice on this whole piece of how to shift that balance? So a couple of things. One is that as a leader, you are a role model. So if you are not taking care of yourself, no one else is taking care of themselves as well as you think they are. Um, so if you're, you're the one who never turns off the computer, everyone else is going to be afraid to turn it off as well. So you've got to be modeling the behavior you want to see in others. The thing you're trying to do in this pandemic is a great example, but just generally in life, you want to keep your team stronger, longer. And you as an individual the same way. Now, if, if they've got you as a coach, they're actually taking the first good step. And I think having a coach is a great way to at least give yourself some space where you're, you're dedicated to you and someone who's invested in that relationship with you growing personally. Um, 
So I think you've got to acknowledge that. So if you are really committed to self-care and others, it has to start with you because others are watching to see, to see what you do. And then, you know, even the, the most valuable member of a team, leader of a team, think of, of an athletic team, that great star player, uh, if he or she doesn't take care of themselves and they're out, they're not of much value to the team. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep yourself in, you know, in a condition where you can be in and giving your best as well. And that does mean taking a break. It does mean developing the, your next tier of people so they can step in and, and run things for a while while you're taking a break. That's what okay. better way to show confidence in them and develop them to move forward. Okay. Okay. I think we need to keep reminding ourselves on that one. I think we all tend to believe I'm great. I'm strong. I can do this. I can work without sleep. I've done it for years. I don't need it. I can just go, 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 go. So I think we tell ourselves that story and I think we're kidding ourselves in how effective we actually are. And I think that comes right back to the emotional fragility and therefore back to the fragility of resilience that you're, you know, if you can't respond in that consistent way so that people know that I can count on the person that shows up again the personality that shows up that just makes it all that much harder as well okay eric you got two minutes any last bit of advice on dealing with the crisis the uncertainty or the resilience that we're in at the moment any last words yes i would say that we have to remember this this crisis looks really tough right now we're, we're talking about it we're not the the end is out there but we can't see it but every crisis does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So there will be an end to this. You're going to be thinking about it now as a leader. You have to be thinking forward, not just what do we need right now, but what are we going to need two months from now, even two years from now, to think about where your business is going to go, where what's society, how is society going to change, how are your customers going to change. Be thinking about those things. You know, and we called the book You're It for two reasons. One was the personal one of, of you are it. And we just talked about that in terms of modeling behavior. But you is also plural. And your job as a leader, best thing you can do is, is create the conditions where people are able to contribute to the fullest extent of their ability. You've got the power to give them permission to create the space where they can engage and feel psychologically safe, where they can be excited to contribute. And so... That's your biggest job. It's not, as you mentioned earlier, having all the answers. It's using the power and authority you have, the influence you have, to create that wonderful space where people can, can be invested and feel themselves growing. And I think this is the time through this crisis. We've got to remember to be aspirational. We've got to remember that we want to look back on this and say, we were at our best. We were taking care of our, each other. We were taking care of our customers. We were thinking about where we were going to, how we were going to come out of this. We were really at our best, and this was, as difficult as it was, actually a time when good things happened. Mm. There's hope for you. Right there. I love that. What a lovely way to think about this entire crisis, as we know that a crisis will bring a team together in a stronger way. And if you think about this, and your aspiration as a leader and as a member of that team is to be able to look back and say, we were at our best. I love that in spite of all the adversity that we're facing. It's awesome. It's awesome. All right. My guest today is Eric McNulty. The book we've been talking about is You're It, meaning you and you, the team. It's about crisis change and how to lead when it matters most. You can learn more about Eric at his website, ericmcnulty.com. And Eric, thank you again for being a guest. This was, I guess, this was a fabulous conversation. Wanda, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. And to all of your listeners, stay healthy and be well. Okay. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.